Hi, from New York City, I'm Freddy Ramirez of Restrung Magazine, and you're listening to Racquetball Restrung. Racquetball Restrung is an opportunity to hear from leaders, players, and influencers in the sport of racquetball, to hear their perspectives on the state of the sport today, as well as to get some insight on their careers and the influences that keep them passionate about racquetball. If you're familiar with Restrung Magazine or are a regular or sometimes reader of my blog, then my hope is that you find the conversations you hear on Racquetball Restrung relevant and insightful. If you're just hearing about Restrung Magazine and have even a small interest in racquetball, then please check out restrungmagazine.com or restrungmag.com. Also, follow us on Facebook and we can be found on Twitter and Instagram. Definitely worth a look. We never post the same content on the feeds. I'll start off this session by saying I'm having a blast talking with my guests and that it's proving to be something of an enlightenment. I always knew that the sport was filled with passionate people, but I'm also learning how people really are willing to give up themselves in the sport that we love. And on that note, I have to say the Gearbox family has been crazy supportive of me and the sport as a whole. Check out who they are and what they do and their innovative gear. So find them. My conversation in this session of Racquetball Restrung is with Sudzi Monchek. Sudzi is a five-time pro world champion, four-time U.S. Open champion, and is currently serving as head coach to the Ecuadorian national racquetball team. For anyone who knows the sport, Sudzi's name is synonymous with revolutionary play. Our talk initially dives into his views about his current experience as the Ecuadorian coach where he shares his insight on the cultural differences he sees with them on the court and the approach he has taken coaching them. He talks about how it influences how he follows professional racquetball, and he shares his views on the current coaching climate in the pro ranks. He shares his thoughts on what professional racquetball players should be doing off the court if they are truly dedicated based on his experience as a dominant player. And he touches on personal marketing. So Z answers my question to him about whether he plans to play professionally again. He also shares his unique perspective about the current GOAT Kane Wasilinchuk and his place in pro racquetball's all-time status and the differences between Kane and the rest of the current professional field. And of course, I ask him about his thoughts on the two competing pro tours where he discusses the levels of play on both. I then asked him about his views on facilitating growth here in the U.S. and USA racquetball. He shared his assessments and ideas and his thoughts on Paola Longoria, where then our conversation closed with a discussion about the different types of growth available to racquetball. I'll get to it. My conversation with Sudzi Manchek. Yo, dude, man, cool. thanks. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I totally appreciate it. One of the things I wanted to ask you, like initially, I kind of wanted you to get into a little bit of how racquetball is changed in terms of your engagement now. Now you're coaching the Ecuadorian team. And is that something that is temporary, something that you've moved into as a permanent thing? How's it working for you now? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, you know, as far as um, talking to you, Freddie, it's always a pleasure. Thanks, <laughs> so, so thank you for having me. Oh, uh, listen to listen to some of your, your podcasts, pretty awesome, and that's you know that's why I agreed to jump on and do it. I mean, other than you being a friend, I just uh, I really liked what I heard in the, in the Cliff interview and the Ellie interview, and good stuff. So you're doing good stuff, and definitely we appreciate it, and I appreciate it for racquetball. Awesome, thanks um, for the kind words. 
As, as far as my changes, I mean, obviously, you know, going from uh, a strict competitor uh, and player and not really coaching, you know, when Ecuador contacted me and asked if I would be interested in coaching, I really wasn't sure at the time, um, you know, if I was serious, but it was kind of like somebody offering you a job that I don't believe in really closing doors. So initially my, my response was, yeah, sure, I'm interested, but but really having no idea what was going to be on the dinner table, you know? Right. And, uh, and then that just kind of manifested into this amazing opportunity that began last May, May 2015, when the Ecuador team came actually to Staten Island, New York, from Ecuador. Uh, talk about a leap of faith, wow. you know, four players and, and, a, and a physical therapist they sent up to Staten Island, New York, and right away that just showed the commitment they had. And it was easy for me to you know, really jump on board and, and give them all my passion. Because one of the things, if anyone knows that's listening, knows that I'm very passionate, very competitive, um, and very committed to goals. And when I saw that they had that commitment, it was easy for me to give them the shirt off my back and then pour out my heart and soul of all my knowledge and experience and, and you know, days of playing and, and obviously now coaching. Right. Um, and it's, it, it could be full time. Yeah. I mean, it, it started off as a contract that was going to go through the end just for the full eight weeks. Uh, it was the, to train them for the Pan American games in Toronto. Uh-huh. Uh, we did that and then they instantly wanted to extend the contract and do it for longer. So now I currently have a contract to the end of 2016 and I don't really see uh, any reason or actually I see more of a reason why I would stay. <laughs> right. That's awesome. In, in terms of like how that's working out, you mentioned that they initially showed up with four players. Is it still four players or is it, um, are they extending more players within your reach over there or are there plans to do that? Well, that, well, the, the initial team was made up already. That was the team that was going to Toronto for the Pan Am games. They right. were already in place. So that's who they sent me to train. Right. Uh, now I currently train everybody that's in the plan. So the Ministry of Sports, Ministerio de Deporte down in Ecuador, uh-huh. um, they support 12 athletes. And these athletes, these racquetball players, they actually get paid by the government to be racquetball players. Wow. So I'm in charge of all of them. And pretty much any, you know, the national team or anybody that's competing in international events. And that's my, that's my position. So yeah, it's, it's more than just the four because we select, uh, you know, I select, um, after the qualifying system, who goes to what events and whatnot. Wow. What are the age ranges? Uh, well, we have a junior team. So like I took the junior team to the Dominican for the world junior world championships in November. So wow. they, they range from eight to 18, uh, well, eight to 20, 28, wow. eight years old to 28. Dude, that's amazing, man. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. One of oh man, I got a I got a call from Doug Ganim. I'll call him back. <laughs> <laughs> That's just like Doug wow. Ganim, who's that? That guy. Who's, that guy who is that guy? Season, right? Who is that guy? A, I, I don't. You know, he when played he, a big role in my career. Oh yeah, you know, it's like it's one of those things where he calls. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I never know. You know, it's <laughs> with Doug, yeah. but it's always positive. Anyway, um, back to what we were talking about. Um. So you're training now up to 12 athletes, right? And obviously there are cultural differences. What's your experience been, and we'll move on to broaden this, but what's your experience been coaching these young players? And mind you, I'm asking you in terms of them being South American players. So culturally they might be different. How are they responding to you? And what are you learning from that? Well, first of all, I tell them this every day. I, you know, I don't care about all the titles I've had and all the years I've been in the sports and the great plays I've seen come and gone and all the lessons and clinics I've done. I learn something every day still 
on a racquetball court. Um, and I can learn it from a beginner, or I could learn it from the best players in the world. I can learn it from you in a conversation. Um, I'm always open to, to learning. And, and as you know, uh, I think Buddha said it or someone that, you know, it's a fact. You don't learn when you speak. You only learn when you listen. Uh, and anybody that knows me knows I love to speak. But what they don't know is I'm a great listener. <laughs> so, um, you know, culturally, first of all, you know, when I coach, I found right away that I was in the court, uh, especially in competition with them. I felt like I was in there with them. every serve, every swing, every point, every call, everything. So my competitive nature has not gone away at all. Hmm. Uh, my composure, you know, I've learned, you know, the Ecuadorian team, um, you know, specifically, and I'm finding in some other South American countries, they're very laid back. So my aggressive attack, attack, attack style, uh-huh. um, I kind of tell them, you know, we learn a lot from the wild and how a lion attacks its prey. It kind of walks up very efficiently, very calmly, and then it just mauls it. Um, you know, so I'm kind of teaching them that. At first, they were like, whoa, you know, what's going on here? It was like, mm-hmm. it was like uh, unleashing Mike Tyson on a, you know, on, on a fighter when he was in his prime. Wow. Um, so culturally, they would definitely at first like, whoa, 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 this is a lot. You know, we kind of just go out there and play, and then we see what happens. And I've taught them that, you know, this is a competition. The person that's on the court with you or the team we're playing against, they want to beat you. So it's okay to not be nice for an hour and to go and compete um, or two hours or whatever it takes and, and still be the first person off the court to pick up that person if they're on the floor or put your arm around them or give them a handshake or help them out if you need. But ultimately, I'm trying to, I try to from the start completely recondition and reshape their mind. I call it mental strength and conditioning. Uh-huh. And, you know, I mean, listen, at, at these levels, I don't need to teach somebody how to hit a backhand. I could. I don't need to, have to teach you how to hit a drive serve. I do. And obviously, I'm going to help you do it. But more important to me is the cerebral side. When you're at this level, it's when do you do it? Why do you do it? How are we going to do it? You know, we adapt. We overcome. What's our plan? Go do it. When you're a coach, I find the most frustrating. It's very hard. It's much, much harder to coach than it is to play. I'd way rather be serving to Cliff or Kane or Jason or anyone at 10-10 in the tiebreaker at the U.S. Open than having to watch one of my players serve at 10-10 in the tiebreaker. Right. It, it, it's very difficult, but I, but, I, but I am definitely enjoying it. But it would definitely be the, the biggest cultural change is the, the mental approach, and that's where I think um, – you know, that's what we're changing for right. the better. It makes sense now that you put it that way in terms of trying to affect something that you're not physically doing yourself. So it's kind of imparting on someone the mental will to move the way that they need to move in whatever situation, adverse situation, whatever situation they may face. So it's interesting. So has this been... Freddie, like- that, by the way, sorry to cut you off. That's one of the things that... I've seen a huge improvement on all my players, and we just had some really good success at the Pan Am Championships, which is totally different than the Pan Am Games, And um, is that I've given them belief when they're on that court and I'm sitting outside. They almost feel, they just feel so much more confident, so much more belief in what I say, not only because I've done it so many times over the years and, and my my career resume, but the mental belief they have in me, just when we make eye contact, right? they just feel so, and it's taken some of them 
you know, definitely to a new level. And this is just the beginning. I mean, we've only been doing this for eight months. Right. Well, that makes sense. I mean, it really is situational. I mean, you can hit the same shot a million times. So it's not about the shot. It's about the when, you know, so it, it makes tons of sense to me. So has this been your first experience training or coaching pro level players? I mean, consistently and yes or no? I mean, and, and yes. then, th so this, yes, consistently, this, this has been my first experience. I mean, I've helped out a little bit here or there. I've coached a little bit here or there, but nothing like this, this level, this commitment. Okay. Do you follow regularly like uh, what's happening here in the States professionally and both amateur? I, I know that you're coaching um, the Ecuadorian team. You kind of have to know what the other teams are looking like, or, or maybe you don't just to kind of like move forward in the question. Do you follow racquetball? And, and my interest is, do you follow professional racquetball regularly? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, first off, I love the sport, um, you know, and, and I now have a responsibility to, to a country, um, to individual players, and still to myself. And, and I feel I have a responsibility to the game. You know, I feel that my name, Sudzi, is synonymous with racquetball. Um, so when racquetball does well and what it does, it matters to me um, just as much as it matters to the sport, really. Mike, I follow it all, Freddie. I do. All right. So a question that I could come up with right now is, is there enough coaching in professional racquetball right now? I'll tell you, one of the things I, I realize now, you know, that I'm not competing professionally every weekend like I used to, I am just baffled how little coaching there is. Um, Cliff and I joke about it all the time where, and this is not our ego speaking. This is just, you know, what we believe makes a huge difference. Right. We are just shocked that our phones aren't ringing off the hook. And Hey, maybe, maybe that says something about us. Maybe it's a, no judging here, but there is absolutely not enough coaching racquetball, especially at the pro level. And I, I'm not going to give you all my coaching tips, little secrets, but I'm going to tell you some of the things I go over with my players. So on the pro level, they play games to 11 points. Right. Okay. And this was always my approach. I don't know if you know, I have a tattoo now on my, my ankle. It's a number 11. You know, and a lot of people ask. And I said, well, that, that kind of made my career and who I am. But anyway, so it's very special to me. So in 11 points, you don't have many chances. You have to be playing every single point like it's 10-10 in the breaker. Right. Because before you know it, you snap your fingers, it's 5-0 and it's over. And, and now what do you do? I know for a fact that every player out there on tour, if I could just by sitting out there, in belief, give them two more points a game. Now they only have to go get nine points. They just shorten the game. Right. Now all you got to do is hit a couple of good shots. Let's, let's say three aces. Now you just need six points. Hmm. Now you just got to have your opponent miss one or two. Now you only need four points. Right. right. So every point matters. And coaching, I believe if you have the right coach, um, can absolutely assist in getting those, those points that you need. I mean, that's what it comes down to. You right. got to score more points than your opponent and you got to do it, you know, before he or she does. Right. And, you know, coaching what I'm finding, and this is what I tell my players too, is that when I was on the court doing it and the success I had, I couldn't come off the court and articulate why or how or what. Now, as I sit outside and watch, that's, I'm, I'm very good at communicating, I think, Freddie, and I'm able to tell them, explain to them how, why, what, when, where, all right. that. You still have to go execute. Right. So it doesn't, I could, you could be the greatest coach on the planet. Cliff could be the greatest coach on the, Fran could be the great, the player still has to go execute. Right. But the knowledge 
and the experience and seeing the things we see, especially when you've done it for so many years from a high competitive level, we're seeing it before anybody else, even before you as a player. And I speak for me as a player when I was on the court. I may have saw the momentum shift one or two points too late. But remember what I just said. It goes quick. Mm. And we got to get those one or two points before you. Right. Right. So the pro players nowadays, I mean, you know, I guess you and I both agree that there's probably not enough coaching. Absolutely. Do you, do you think it's endemic in the pros themselves or do you think they're reacting to the pro climate now? I, I think it's a couple things. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I, I definitely believe that, you know, a lot of it's financial. Um, yeah. I think it's a little bit egotistical, not much. I think it's more, you know, more financial, um, you know, that they're afraid. I mean, maybe there's a, maybe there's a guy out there that wants, wants me to coach, but he maybe looks at it and goes, well, there's no way I can afford him. So it doesn't matter. Uh, but how would you know, unless you had that conversation, that's like going into a court, you know, fear is debilitating. That's like going into into the court against Kane going, Oh man, I'm nervous. Well, then you might as well not even bother. Right. Right. And, and so I think it's a little bit of that. I think it's financial because yes, of course it comes with a, with a price, um, you know, maybe there's just not enough money and maybe that's part of the problem or not. Maybe they just don't want to coach and, and they're happy and content with, with the results they have. Right. I right. mean, you know, how I'm wired and how I was always wired was my result was I want to be number one. Right. Right. So well, with, that, with that said, I would say that there's, you know, Kane and then everybody else could use a good coach. <laughs> right. Uh, Cliff said something um, that rung a bell with me. He put some responsibility on the pro players themselves. Obviously, you know, they need a thriving tour to be able to kind of be able to afford coaches. But uh, part of it is also the part that they play in terms of there being like a vibrant professional climate. So whether or not they recognize that and are doing all the things, like he mentioned, the guy like Rocky does all this, all the right things, has a coach, you know, so he's doing everything that he can and the players can't. Um, what would you, what would you tell them in today's climate, the things that they should be doing both for themselves and to kind of like facilitate the pro climate or better yet, if you were playing today, what would you be doing? Well, first of all, I wouldn't tell you that because maybe I'll come back and play. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about that. We're definitely going to talk about that. First and first and foremost, I would tell them to be as prepared and ready as possible. Um, I would say that you know, another thing I preach to my players is accountability and responsibility. So if you're happy or your, your, your results are what they are, um, you ask yourself, look in the mirror, are you doing every single thing that you possibly can do to obtain the best possible results? Now with that, Freddie, you know, cause people ask me all the time, Oh, would you coach this one? Would you coach that one? And I won't say names because those names haven't come to me and said, will you coach me? Um, the answer is no. There, it's not like I would just, it's, it's not just about money where, oh yeah, if Freddie's going to pay me X amount of money, all right, I'll coach you. Right. Um, because I have to believe in you. And if I don't believe you're committed, then I have zero interest. Um, so, so, you know, as far as what, what to do, I mean, there's a lot of things to do to be the best player in the world. But the first question is, do you want to be the best player in the world? Or are you content with being number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight? You know, are you happy with just traveling around, partying in all different cities, you know, coming and going and getting out of there? Well, my question um, to you is professionally. I would almost interview a player before I would even consider coaching them. How's that? <laughs> well, professionally, what they sh- what should they be doing off the court? Um, uh, aside from training. I, I mean, they you know they have to fully. It's a full twenty four seven commitment to being the best possible they could be, and that's everything from everything they consume to how they train, 
training correctly, who they speak with, who they seek counsel from. You know, off the court, it's, it's, you know, that was my life. That's all I did. So everything I did, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, was geared towards getting those 11 points before anybody else right. and was be, to be the best player in the world. So it, it doesn't stop with, you know, you're saying, what do they do off the court? Well, it's, it's everything. Every fine, and again, because I relate life to the racquetball court and matches, you know, every fine detail matters. Right. So I don't care what you're doing. I don't care if you're running through the drive-thru with your kid. I don't care if you're walking to the store. You know, it should always be doing something better to improve, right. you know, or to be to be a little bit better, to be better. Right. And marketing-wise, should they be pushing themselves to, like, manufacturers or outside the sport? Oh, or? my God. If they, I mean, if, I, I, wish, I wish that Twitter and Instagram and Facebook was more prevalent when I was – you know, it was coming around towards the end of my career, but you know, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they have to do everything they can to, to brand themselves, you know, but some people just aren't brand worthy. You know, not everybody has the personality, not everybody has, you know, the desire, the, the, the look, the social skills, um, you know, so, so you can't really blame the player, but a lot of it's on the player, of course. Right. I mean, listen, J Jason's a hall of famer, but you know, he, he was, and he, he was great at speaking to people when he needed to and, and promoting and marketing himself, uh, you know, and, and look at Cliff. Cliff wasn't great at marketing himself, but he did it by his actions. Right. He did it by, by his, the, the way he was prepared, the way he was ready every week and the way he kicked everybody's asses for years. Right. Well, you just coined a new term for me, um, brand worthy. Uh, that's actually pretty insightful. I mean, it, it says a lot. Um, speaking of that, well, um, but it's true, Freddie, as you know, not everybody is brand worthy. I'm sorry. You know, I could go to a tournament. I could watch a match and fall asleep. Guess what? That person just isn't brand worthy. It's okay. It's okay. Not everybody can be, it's, you know, it's, it's just okay. Everybody's got a role in life. <laughs> I got you. You know, speaking of your roles and you mentioned you've been, uh, you're playing a lot more, you're way more active than you've been. Um, how have you been feeling? Like just to, before we get to that, how have you been feeling physically? I went to the doctor the other day for a checkup and I mean, physically weight wise, I haven't been this weight. I don't think it's probably first time I was number one in the world. Wow. I actually wanted to go eat a little bit more. Wow. Um, no, I mean, I, I've just, I've been eating great. Um, you know, my, my daily lifestyle obviously now calls for me to, to be doing that and training all the time I'm on the court all the time. Uh, feel awesome. Uh, you know, I do have a torn labrum and still have that back thing that I was born with. So I will, to answer the question, there's, there isn't enough money. I shouldn't say that <laughs> for me to commit to want to be, you know, playing Kane and these guys all the time. Uh, so but there's no doubt in my mind I can compete with them if I wanted to. I just uh, don't want to. Well, then you just answered something that I was going to ask you. Are you thinking about playing professionally? No chance. Nope. N no but chance. If there's somebody out there that, that wants to, pay me enough to make me mentally commit that's different uh -huh. you know but no I, I have zero desire to do it um i watch cliffy do it and I, I get a kick out of it i love it and so he's amazing he could still compete and another reason why it shows me that i could if i wanted to um i just don't want to i'm happy with what i'm doing uh, i'll play some doubles here and there you know i train with my team okay I'm closing up my luggage if it sounds like I'm struggling. You want me to stop that? No, <laughs> no, I'm no, traveling no. today. It's all cool. You're uh, traveling. Where are you off to? San Antonio for the LPRT event. And mm -hmm. then I have, uh, and I also have five of my team members coming up to play in that event. So oh, that's cool. awesome, man. That's awesome. So that sounds like a fun trip. So no distinct plans to play professionally, not even kind of like a cameo at the U.S. Open or anything like that? 
Uh, no. No. Definitely no. not. No. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's. But so you're playing. Rec- so you're playing recreationally. No. I'm playing all the time. I mean, could I jump in a, in a in a doubles event here or there? Can I be enticed to to possibly jump in a singles draw? Yeah, maybe. All right. You know, but but I don't. I you know, Freddie, it's a mental desire. It's just like saying about these players today. If they're not fully committed, I don't want to go out there. You know, there's players that's there's people that saw me play for the last time, and and maybe I was at my best. Maybe I was at you know leaving on my way out. I don't want to give them an impression of, you know, oh, that's Sudsy. That's what I just saw. Who was it? Lou Gehrig said it? Or Mickey Mantle. They said, Mickey, how do you go out every single time and play so hard every time you go out there? And Mickey Mantle said, he goes, because there's going to be somebody in those stands that maybe never saw me play or will never see me play again. Right. So I want their impression to be of that. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense, man. I think what you said is very important. I think professionally, people will always look at you um, in terms of, well, that's the Sudsy I remember, or that's the Sudsy, or is that the Sudsy that everyone talked about? You know, so it's kind of important in that sense. Recreationally, I think, you know, if you're going to be in, a, in the sport, I think it's very important to keep playing. I think, you know, the sport itself is amazing, you know, and it's like it's there's a lot of value in playing. And that said, if you ever want to cross train, dude, and you ever want to go out and hit outdoor on one wall court you know you you could just call me it could just be us too you know we can have some fun you know it's like it's not like you haven't as long done it as before. i can keep the ball in the court you know because i'm still hitting the ball as hard as anybody that's for sure <laughs> i have no doubt that that'll happen so we'll talk about that at another point um going back to like pro talk and stuff uh I asked this of Cliff. I, it's not typically a question that I ask, but, you know, you and Cliff are, you know, special cases. Now that you guys are fully engaged in coaching, how have the other coaches kind of like taken to your interest in coaching? Uh, I mean, I speak to Fran's a good friend of mine, so I speak to her all the time, and she's fantastic. Franny is definitely, uh, you know, uh, loving that I'm involved in coaching and whatnot. Yeah, Fran is awesome. Uh, uh, Winterton, you know, Tom Travis, I spent some time with him. He's another great guy. You know, he's committed to Guatemala and they're doing great. Um, he's their coach, right? I don't really speak too much. Okay. Um, don't, you know, I've seen him once or twice here or there. Okay. Okay. All right. Really no comment or opinion on that. I mean, his thing is, is Kane, you know, the the only, the only difference I see is, you know, and, and this is where I couldn't see me because I believe coaching is a relationship. Right. What I've developed with my players is, they look at me and they have that belief when they see me. So I, how could I coach, sit outside, coach Veronica Sotomayor, who I want, you know, to win every match she plays, and then coach another female player on tour or, or somebody from another country or state? I mean, how could I be totally committed? Yeah, right. You know, I, it, it, I just, I don't, I don't totally believe in that. Right. Um, it's not like golf where you can coach a hundred different players. You know, how can somebody go to? you know, your, your competitor, you know, or your biggest competitors coach and say, Oh, can you coach me? Right. At some point that that, that coach, because of the relationship, you got to pick and choose a side right. and you just do. And I don't want to hear, Oh, I'll just sit outside. Right. Right. And watch. All right. Cause that, that, you know, that I don't necessarily, well then I don't believe in that. And then if that's, if that's how you want to go about it, good luck. Right. You know, I don't think Fran coaches any other men except Rocky. Right. And I don't think she's coaches any other women except Paola. Right. On the amateur level, she's got a bunch of great players. Right. You know, so it, it, it baffles me to think that anybody would seek counsel, you know, um, or, or seek advice to their biggest or biggest competitors, you know, coach. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's it's all a matter of climate, right? Um, you, uh, 
What do you think of Kane? I'll get straight to it. What do you think of what he's doing? You know, I mean, I can ask you this. I can ask Cliff this because you guys were in a very similar, unique position. Um, what do you see? Like, how do you see it? I see, I see an absolutely amazing athlete, not just racquetball, on and off a racquetball court. I see a guy that goes out and does his job every time he gets on the court, puts whoever you put in front of him, it doesn't matter if you're big, little, strong, weak, soft, hard, number one, number 50. Uh, if your name's Sudsy, if it's Cliff, he just wants to beat you bad and get in and out of there. Right. That focus to me, I'm very, I admire a lot. Uh, the only other person I saw close to that was Cliff in, in the sense of I just want to kill you every time I play you. Right. So Kane's doing his job. Kane is put, whoever you put in front of him, he's doing his job. Right. Um, so I take nothing away from that. I think he's obviously statistically, you know, on paper, he's, he's the greatest player of all time, right? Statistically, that's crystal clear. On paper. And right. that's a great conversation people love to have. Oh, would you do this? Would you do that? Who knows? Right. I don't know. My, Kobe Bryant's the closest I've ever seen to Jordan. Does that mean he's better than LeBron? I have no idea. Right, right. Uh, you know, all you could say is, yeah, we've played a few times. And then, then the argument is, oh, well, you were towards your end. He was coming up. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of irrelevant. Right, I think that he is. I think he is. He, uh, well, I'm sorry. He is 100%. Uh, you know, one of the top three players of all time by far, because I believe four, five, six, and everybody else is is pretty far from that. Right. You know, I like the Space Jam theory. I always used to say, me and Russ always used to talk about Space this. Jam. It's the the Space Jam theory. It's <laughs> okay. You take all these players in in a sport, right, to, and say the great they're going to play their best ever at this moment, and they're going to play each other. Who wins? Right. Like you do it, but it's mostly an individual sport. So you take tennis. You can't really do it in time sports. Right, because you can say, well, Michael Phelps swam this fast, or Usain Bolt ran this fast, or but you can do it head to head, right? You could say, okay, if Roger Federer played the greatest match of his life, and then Novak's going to play the greatest of his life, and then Andre's going to play the greatest. Who's going to win that match? Right, right. Who would you want to face the aliens? You know, that's what I always say. That's crazy. And and, and you know, the, the thing about Kane's era is that the game hasn't changed. The game is the same. The mental approach of the athletes have changed. It was a lot nastier back in the day. And one of the things Kane possesses that a lot of these guys don't is that nastiness. Right. It's, it's that competitiveness. It's that, it's that Michael Jordan. It's that, you know, Tiger Woods. It's, I'm not here to be your friend. I'll be your friend when I'm done. I'm not laughing and smiling. I mean, Cliff sent me a, a, a video. I'm not even going to use the names. Kane was playing somebody while they were warming up for about 10 minutes. Warming up to play a match, Freddie. These, this player was talking to Kane, and Kane was actually giving him like advice on drive serves. I, I, I'm like, w w I can't watch this. Wow. So that part of it is nauseating to me, but I'm pretty sure Kane, Kane's a smart guy. We talk occasionally. We talk on text occasionally. He knows what he's doing. Of course he does. And he, kn he knows that he's got everybody lined up, just giving him a little, here you go, here you go, little boy, okay, go home, okay, go home. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, he, he, listen, he's a badass, I love him, and I love him, and I love that about him. Yeah, he's a badass, you know, um, that's for sure. I, I love that he goes out and kicks, I mean, he gave us, I don't know, two or three donuts once, I text him, all I text him was, are you serious? And he goes, oh yeah, I'm serious. You know, like, like it was, it's just, he loves doing what he's doing. Even me, 
I, I like to entertain a little bit more. You know, I might go out there and kick the shit out of you, but I really like to enjoy the crowd and, and, and make sure everyone was having fun as, as well as myself. Right. You know, and, and that's why I had so much or, or a pretty good success against Cliff because I knew I was playing the greatest player ever. Right. So my focus was different. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, talk about focus. I mean, from what I see with Kane, Kane doesn't care what anyone outside of his family, of course, doesn't care what anyone thinks. He, he shouldn't. He, he can't. He, and you can't. You have to just go out there and do your job, and that's what he's doing. Yeah. Um, you know, so shame on these other guys if they don't want to make adjustments or try, because I've seen guys that can play with him. Listen, he's not wearing a cape. People used to think I wore a cape or Cliff wore a cape. We didn't wear a cape. We were just better than you and did more than it took, and that's what he's doing. Right. This happens in all sports, all walks of life. Right, right. That guy, that guy that's studying for that test at Harvard has the same material you're studying for. You have the same material to study for. Wow. That's <laughs> so it's up to you. You have to go with accountability and responsibility. Yeah, man. And, and, you know, Cliff said it too. No one's really doing anything about it, you know, or trying to do anything about it. Everyone's playing for second place. And, and, but here's the problem. They're happy with that and they're content with that. So then what do you expect? Right. Right. You know, what if, if every time one of these guys goes on the court and Kane, you know, does what he does, I would first thing I would say is, hey, what'd you do different to not have that happen? Oh, oh nothing. OK, what are you going to do different? Don't tell me, oh, I'm going to go work on my drive serve or oh, I'm going to go get physically fit. Right. It takes a lot more than that. Right. Well, you can hit the same exact shots Kane can. Why is he hitting them more often than you and more consistently? Right. Well, I promise you, if you open him up, he's not a robot. He's human. Well, it's all about targeting, too. No one's targeting the guy. No one's going after, like, sees a weakness. Not that he has any, but, you know, you don't see someone. Everybody has a weakness. Right, that's right. You don't, you don't see anyone going in with a real game plan. Well, I'm going to attack one thing and just do it. And when they see it, just keep doing it. You know, no one has his, their sights set on the guy. A lot of it has to do with just his ability. And he is right now physically the best player on the tour when it comes to game time. But, you know, I don't see anyone really targeting him specifically. You know, with Rocky, Rocky and I are great friends. I think he's a, a wonderful player. But one of the things, you know, I questioned with him is his game style. It's good for everyone else. For Kane, it just doesn't work. And I've seen him on the outdoor court be nasty and aggressive and drive. And, you know, he doesn't really do that with Kane. I wish he did it more. But I don't see anyone putting targets on Kane. Well, well I, the one thing I disagree with you, the only thing, because I really disagree with my buddy Freddie, uh -huh. is that Kane isn't physically the best player on tour. He's mentally the best player on tour. Gotcha. Remember early we talked about getting to 11 points? Right. Every one of these guys, before they walk on the court, Kane's up. Whether it's one zero two zero three zero four zero before zero zero is even called, because these guys don't believe, and what they need, every one of them needs, is a complete mental reconditioning. Right. They, I don't believe they don't target. I don't think they have a clue. Right. I don't think they know how. So back to you know the coaching too. I mean, God, if I was one of these guys, I'd be begging Cliff. I'd be like Cliff, what do you, what do I do here? Don't tell me to hit a drive serve. I know how to hit a drive serve. Tell me when, where, what. You know, what's the tempo? What's the tempo of the game, the match you want me to play? What's, you know, what am I, what am I going to pressure when I'm in the, map, in the rallies? What do I do after he aces me three in a row? What do I do when he's laughing because he just hit one behind his back, rolled it out off the sidewall, three-wall post? Right. You know, what do I do when I'm down 1-0? What do I do when I'm up 2-0? Right. What do I do now? It's fine. These are things that guys like Cliff can answer. 
These are things like guys I, like I can answer, like Jason can answer, like Ellie can answer. This is this is this is another thing I preach to my players is, and I and, and I say this, I say I promise every one of you, all of my players, there is not going to be a situation that you will be in that I haven't been in many times over before, where I have failed and I have succeeded in that situation. And I'm going to give you the knowledge and the know-how and understanding as to what we need to do here. I have my number one guy player in the world who just most recently, you know, he got to the semis. He had a great tournament. He, I think he beat, he beat Bobby Horn in the semis. Then he played Daniel uh, in the quarters. Then he, played, beat, he almost beat Jake. He lost 11-8 in the breaker. He lost to Daniel, pretty good match. I mean, number one, it's a belief and a confidence. But it's also that his, his mind on the way, the way the game is played is different. Um, one of my players said, which was a great compliment, I didn't understand it at first. Mm-hmm. She said, I've learned more from you sitting at this dinner table talking about racquetball in one hour than I have for 10 years trying to play with a coach. And what, what she said then was she said that she sees the game. So, so let's, say there's a, let's say there's a thousand people watching a match. Right. If I could get you to sit there and watch that match but see it differently than everybody else that's watching it, then I know we're making progress. And that's, that was such a compliment to me at the time because now that we've been doing this, I understand because I promise you when I sit down and watch a match and Cliff sits next to me and Kane sits next to him and Jason sits next to him, or we're all watching the same match. Right. But I promise our brains are processing it and seeing it differently. That makes sense. I stand corrected. Uh, Kane is definitely the most mentally prepared, not physically prepared. Although he, you know, he shows up, he does what he has to do on the tour. Uh, speaking of tours, what do you think about the two tours going on? I mean, what were, what initially were your thoughts and how do you see things today? For me, it's always the loaded question that I ask everybody. What do you think of the two tours? Well, I, I listen, I think it's, Well, let me, real quick, I just want to, you know the lion in the jungle theory? Well, no, I don't, but enlighten me. Okay, who's the tallest animal in the jungle? The giraffe. Who's the strongest? Uh, The elephant. Fastest? The cheetah. Smartest? I don't know. Who would be the smartest? Uh, ele- I don't know. Don't they say elephants are pretty smart? Or, elephant. You know? Yeah. All right. Let's let's just say let's argument's sake the, the elephant. Who's the king? Of, who's the king of the jungle? The lion. But yet he doesn't have any one of those attributes, huh? No, he doesn't. Okay. King's the king of the court. Anyway, um, and I'm not saying he doesn't hit just as hard as some. He's uh-huh. not just as fast as some. But <laughs> think about that. Think about that for a second. Tell, hey, Freddie, you could use that with your kid too. <laughs> I'm, I'm still processing it. I mean, we're talking jungle animals, but that's awesome. Hey, it, it's all relative to life, brother. It's all, it all, it all transfers right to life. Life and sport is the same thing. You know that as well as anyone. Right. Um, it's a bad competition out there. Everybody's fighting for first. And if you're not, then you then just be happy where you are and don't say anything. Um, the two tours, you know, when I first, so first of all, I know there's a lot of, you know, I've been in this game on both ends, both sides of the table for many, many years. Right. You know, the two tours at first, I thought it was a political move. And then, of course, I thought it was uh, trying to make a money move. You know, and then I spoke to Pablo a little bit about it, and, and he enlightened me. And, and I agree. You know, the WRT, they actually preach we don't have the best players in the world. We are not trying to compete to say they don't go market and say we have the best players in the world. They know that the best players in the world are on the IRT. What do I think? I mean, they say in America competition is good. In racquetball, maybe it's, it's not so good because I would like to see all those players playing on the IRT um, just because that's where the best players in the world are. 
Right. So it's great to say you want a WRT event, but the players, other than the little small circles maybe that are at that little club around the world, know that, well, it's kind of like just winning a really good open tournament. Um, you could say it's a professional, but, you know, if, let's see how those guys then do. Let's go see how the Cardonas do and the Jakes do and the Paris do and whoever's winning those WRT events when they go to the IRT events. Right. I think that if they did go to the IRT events, I think that's what's missing. If these guys did play the best players in the world, they could be the best players in the world. Hmm, interesting. But, I, you know, playing each other, again, I tell my guys, just because you're the best player at your club or the best player in your city or country doesn't mean that's good enough for the rest of the world. Right. And, you know, it's the same thing. Just because you win the every WRT event, you know, no offense, you guys are great players. You know, there's no doubt about it. You could be even better players. Right. So so the tour, I mean, listen, whatever. It's, 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 an, it's another tour. Um, you know, I wish everybody could work together and figure out a way to get all the players playing at all the events all the time. I think it'd be good for everybody. And, again, mostly racquetball. I want, I want to see racquetball do well. Racquetball right. does well. Sudi does well. That's true. If racquetball does well, we all do well, right? It's one of exactly. those things. Having the experience that you've had over the last few months, you know, working with Ecuador, what do you think we should be doing here in the United States? Um, when we mentioned the United States, USA Racquetball is by far the leading governing body here. Is there anything that they can be doing to grow and facilitate the sport? Should they be looking to broaden it, uh, work on specific things? With the experience that you've gained over the last few months, how would you assess what needs to be done here? I will, first off, I, I think that there needs to be a little bit of some movement on the USAR board, and I know they just had some new people elected. Um, you know, I, I think we need to figure out a way to get everybody together. Everybody's got to come to the table somehow. We've been sitting at different tables for far too long. USA Racquetball, IRT, IRF, the PAR Association, the Pan American Racquetball Association, right. get Mexico to the table. They, we should have a big summit somewhere. Right. And everybody needs to get together and really pick each other's brains. Everybody should be invited and figure out a way. What can we do? Let, let's, how about let's ride Paola's wave for a little while. We don't know how much longer this is going to go. Right. I was in Mexico. I was in Mexico two weeks ago, and I was sitting with Javier Moreno and Tim Doyle. Right. And we were just talking. Now, we know Paolo is pretty popular in Mexico, but we really don't have any idea, right? Because right. unless you've been there recently. Right. Most so people don't have Javier, an idea. That's right. Most people don't. They don't have an idea. They don't have an idea how big she really is. She's and huge. the problem is it's never going to transfer over here to the States because I'll end this statement with, do you know who the number one Mexican athlete in the United States is today? Probably not. You don't know. You know, as far as St. Not Pat Paola, a Mexican-born national that plays pro sports in the USA, you probably don't know. Right. So, anyway, sitting there with Tim Doyle, Javier Moreno, we're talking. He goes, oh, no, Javier says, she's, she's top two or three athletes in the entire country. Put that in perspective. That would be relative to saying names like Derek Jeter, LeBron James, Michael Phelps. It's crazy. Kobe Bryant, Steph Curry. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's crazy. So I said, no way, Javier. So I decided to ask five random people. I'm talking people that worked at the hotel. Yeah, on the street. People walking by, non-rackable players. Wow. In Spanish, of course. I said, excuse me, do you know Paola Longoria? Every single one of them knew exactly who she was and what she did. Wow. So could you, I mean, if you said here in the States, do you know Kane was a line chuck? And I asked five random people. I mean, I'm pretty certain yeah. maybe none will know. Yeah, you, you're probably going to get like 0. .008. Percent of the that's population. That's not Kane's fault. Yeah, no, no. You know, that's not Kane's doing what he has to do. So, 
you know, I, the first thing I would do if anybody ever gave me a voice and I, and I say, Hey guys, I'm available. Who better to ask than guys that have been in the sport their whole entire life have seen the changes, have been on both sides, the playing, the business side, the now coaching side, the international side, the national side, you know, let's have a summit. Let's get everybody together. Don't ask an individual that question. Let's, let's get together, do a week, do it somewhere. And like, let's talk about what we can do to fix racquetball. Let's ask Mexico, how is your program so rock solid? Ecuador, how is it that you were able to get Sudzi Munchik to come down and coach? Hmm. How did Paola get to where she is? Right. Cliff, why are you now with Lifetime Fitness? Jason, you're the, you're the commissioner of the IRT. I mean, get all of these people, all of these countries, all of these representatives. Get them in a room. Let's right. do it for a week. Right. I'll bet you we'll leave that room with some good ideas. Right. Right. You know, there's just too many different agendas. And, and everybody, because of that, it's like a push-pull. Right. It's like, oh, you want to start another talk? You know, starting the other tour, that's something that we probably could talk about or there are people we could talk about in terms of why that came about. In terms of Paola, in her case, probably there was a perfect storm for her to actually take advantage of what her position is in terms of the sport. I mean, Mexico latched on to a world number one right away. You know what I mean? Or they they noticed. So, so about two months ago, the president of Ecuador did his... Uh, presidential radio address, uh-huh. and he mentioned he mentioned two athletes. He mentioned an Olympic swimmer from Ecuador, and then he mentioned Veronica. Wow. And you know the power of that in a country, or, or or even individually, is is so powerful for the sport that they continue to support it. They continue to get behind it. I mean, I have 12, 12 racquetball players, eight uh-huh. age ranges, fourteen years old uh-huh. to twenty eight that get paid monthly by their government, by their ministry of sport, to be the best racquetball player they can be. Uh-huh. You know, so I don't know if that will ever transfer over, but we have Paola, who is who is top two or three athletes right. as far as fame in her country, right. and she's a racquetball player. Right. Listen, sometimes, especially in our sport, the player can be bigger than the sport, and that's okay. Right. And I learned that because I used to say, give me the platform, and I'll be sudsy. You know, I'll do what I got to do. Right. And I just never was given the platform. Right. So, you know, there was some argument back in the day, promote sudsy and racquetball will kind of follow. Right. Maybe we need to promote Paola and Kane. And oh, by the way, they play racquetball. You know, maybe the story needs to be the dominance, not the sport. Right. Right. Maybe the story needs to be, you know, how, who, what, where, when, how, why, you know, and racket. Oh yeah. By the way, they're racquetball players. Right. Right. Well, I, I think know, I think part of what you're talking about should be tour and professional based. Then in turn, generate more interest from outside companies and promotional. And, you know, USA Racquetball on the other end is in a different position than, say, Ecuador and Mexico, because, you know, they're not government funded per se to uh, employ programming and things like that. So the money that Veronica gets comes from the government. Correct. You know, USA Racquetball isn't in that position. So they're more reliant on being able to fundraise and they're more a nonprofit. So speaking like nonprofit wise with their mission, what do you think they should be doing to access new players or to, you know, change the way that the players come into the sport? Because right now they're mainly like legacy players, dude. If their parents played it or their parents belong to a club, then they play racquetball. What should they be doing? 
Well, I think one of the things definitely, I've, I've always been a big fan of grassroots. I mean, I had a long, good, successful junior career, uh-huh. and the juniors were just rocking uh, back when I was playing in the juniors. You know, take advantage of some of the, the sports, the, the mainstream, so to speak, sports issues right now. You know, you have the NFL where a lot of parents are saying, I mean, you have political figures and famous figures, you know, celebrities saying, I wouldn't let my kid play football because of the head injuries. Um, you know, racquetball doesn't have that. Baseball right now, my son's a baseball player. And baseball numbers are dropping rapidly. And it's because kids are finding it boring because they don't want to stand out in the outfield. You know, the ball's in flight for eight minutes, I think it is. It's a long, slow game. You know, take advantage. Use that to our advantage. Racquetball's a fast, fun game. When I came up, I was, I was playing tennis competitively and racquetball. You know how many people that know? I was, I was doing pretty good at tennis, too, by the way, when I was about 10. But I had two or three na- junior national championships in racquetball. Right. And my coach was like, listen, you've got to make a choice here because you can do pretty good in tennis. And my parents didn't care. Racquetball was booming at the time. And I, I, to me, it was a no-brainer. It wasn't even close because racquetball was just so much more fun. It was fast. It was loud. I liked the friends. I liked the way it was. Whereas tennis was kind of boring. I guess I was just probably gifted with a racket in my hand. Wow. And... And, you know, people are like, oh, do you regret that? I mean, I'm not one of those guys, oh, I don't regret anything I ever did in life. Do I regret it? No, I don't, because I had an amazing life, and I continue to with racquetball. Right. But, but I mean, it probably would have been a little different, <laughs> maybe. Right. You just mentioned something very, very interesting to me, I think. And this is something that I haven't personally thought about, but it's very relevant. When you start thinking about younger athletes and parents engaging their players to their, their players, their kids in sports, there is a very unique climate happening here in the United States where parents are starting to recognize, hey, there are these shortcomings in other sports, football, baseball. And this might be something that USA Racquetball might want to tune an ear towards in terms of being able to recognize where this is happening and figuring out ways on how to take advantage of it. I think that point right there is a really big one. And it's a big one for me because it's something that, and I think about this all the time, it's something that I haven't thought about. Add that in conjunction with all your other programming or all your other outreach plans. I'm glad you mentioned that. I think it's very important. Yeah, well, good. I'm glad. Hey, if I could, like I said, I think a summit would be great because you just kind of let everybody speak and, and, and who knows, maybe you get some great ideas. That's definitely and, one of them. And, and, and not everything costs money. You know, I mean, we do say everything costs money and in a way it kind of does, but you know, if you do it right and attack it right, it's not necessarily, you know, something that's going to break the bank. Right, right. You know, the, the international racquetball, that's one of the things I'm seeing right now is the international competition and commitments by all these other countries. This is something I see more now than I did when I was a player. Right. Uh, obviously, traveling around, being the coach, it's so high. Take advantage of that. Right. How do we get them? How do we get all of them involved? You know, I'm going to this LPRT event this week. Take a look at the countries that are playing there. Right. Right. Well, I mean, it shows it shows in terms of how they're doing where international play is concerned. Like right now, Mexico is owning the goal. You know what I mean? Um, Whereas, you know, if you look at it 10 years ago, that would have never happened. You know what I mean? No, it was USA, Canada, but you could see Mexico come. Let me ask you this question. How is it that I'm coaching Ecuador? Right. Played for Team USA, gold medalist, right, on Team USA for a couple of years. Um, I've been solicited by multiple countries. What would it take to coach? What would it take for me to come there? You come here, do this. Right. Do you know how many times USA Racquetball asked me if I was even interested? Well, again, you know, they... Zero. Yeah, that... that not, not, listen, an email, a text. I still talk to all these people. And I'm not offended by it. Right. I'm just saying, you're going to get what you pay for. Right. Well, so there... Now, as a, go ahead. 
Go ahead. No, well, no, they're ahead. they're in a climate. They're in a climate right now that's kind of different than, say, Ecuador. You know, it's like, all right, I think success breeds interest. So what's happening now internationally is that you have Paola, you have players that are accessing, uh, they're, they're accessing the public in terms of interest. So that in turn spurs more government interest into continuing the funding that they put into the sport. USA doesn't have that where you can say, you know, people are starting to pay attention to Kane and then in turn, the government pays more attention to racquetball. USA racquetball is in a very different climate, whereas they were a product, well, they were able to capitalize on racquetball, say, in the 70s and 80s, because it was more popular because culturally there were less things to do. There were more people at the club. There were more people playing racquetball, and that's how they've grown. Now things have kind of changed. So I, I hear you. They should be contacting you. They should be looking to see how they can start to negate some of the international play. But they're in a different situation. They're not subsidized and they don't have the money. I think what they should be doing, too, is really concentrating on how they're raising funds. Freddie, I, I, could, I couldn't agree more, but I'm not saying I would have to get paid for somebody to say, hey, what do you think about this? Right. I'm sure Cliff would, Cliff would feel free to also engage I'm sure Jason would, right. because whatever we're doing right now here in the States clearly is a little bit stagnant and isn't working exactly the way, you know, we right. hoped it would. Well, yeah, they should be taking advantage of guys like you, uh, guys like Cliff, guys who have been able to stay and parlay their experiences, which are very unique in the sport and say, hey, look, this is one of the advantages we could take. Why not put it on the people's backs who are really vested in the sport? And, you know, and sometimes right. well, you got a clean that's, house. That's, that's the key. There's no self-agenda. Well, I mean, of course, we're always a little bit self-motivated, self-agenda. But but if the sport does well, we all do well. Right. Right. I'm not, I don't own a racquetball company trying to say I want you to sell my rackets. Right. Right. I'm not saying USA Racquetball, call me up and I want you to pay me a million dollars. I want you to say, hey, what do you think we can do? Right. Just like this conversation, let's be productive. Right. Let's all try to help each other. Right. That's a, you know, that's a good point to end on, man. Dude, man, I totally appreciate you taking the time to speak to me, man. And plus, you know, it's always fun talking to you anyway. My pleasure, brother. Anytime. All right. You, got, cool. you have my number. Don't I do have your up. number. <laughs> I do have your number. I will be reaching out. You know, I always do. Cool. Um and again, like when you come back, if you have some free time, you want to cross train a little bit, you know, let's meet in a park on a nice day. Let's talk shop and let's hit the ball around. Like today, it's beautiful out here, brother. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. But you're traveling. I'm traveling. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm going to San Antonio tonight. Can't wait to get there, see my team and, and get going. And All then right, I get man. back to Ecuador uh, next week. Good. Good luck with that. And we'll touch base when you get back. Thanks, Rick. All right, brother. Talk to you soon. Take care, All right, peace. Hey, don't forget hashtag Rackable Guy. <laughs> oh, hashtag Rackable. That's right. Everybody, hashtag Rackable Guy. I'll see, you I'll see everybody later. All right, kiddo, man. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. I want to say thank you again to Sudzi Mancha for taking the time to speak with me and openly share his views. You can follow him on both Twitter and Instagram at SudzyM, pound racquetball guy. A quick thanks to Head Racquetball for their support of Restrung Magazine Online. And please, check out the Reaching Your Dream Foundation and how they are giving back to the sport at reachingyourdreamfoundation.org. Consider signing on to their ambassador program. And of course, my crew, Gearbox Racquetball, and all the support that they provide me. And thank you for taking the time to listen to Racquetball Restrung and keep playing racquetball. 
until next time, take care.